Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsaway. And I'm Zane Zero. And today, we return to you to reminisce on the summer season of anime. Now, when we started out our look on the summer season, I think we were pretty middling to sort of like, you know, kind of poor reception on it. It didn't seem like there were a lot of like good standout shows from it. And it was a lot of, a lot more like hedging our bets on things. Yeah. But I think it worked out pretty well. Like I was genuinely surprised by a number of the shows this season. And like, I still haven't gotten to all of the like big surprises, you know, the things people really started talking about. So it turned out a lot bigger than I would have expected. I, I'm joyously surprised. Yeah, there was some real good stuff this season. Some stuff that I'd say would be added to my favorite list of animes of all time. Yeah, t- totally. I mean, that's that's pretty high praise too. So yeah, let's uh, let's get right into that after just just some quick new stuff. Not a ton to say since the last time we got together. But one thing I found like fascinating. So um. You may remember, I think it was 2016, we saw the English release of a mystery visual novel called Root Letter. And they're doing a new release of it that seems like it's kind of like an updated version, but one of the other things that they're adding to this game is they're replacing all of the anime art with live-action actors. Oh, so they're pulling a 428 Shibuya Scramble. Sort of, sort of like that, but it's like, instead of, like, taking pictures on the scene, it's sort of like using the, like, photos they took for reference for the background art and shoving those in, and then just placing actors on top of it. Huh. Yeah, and from what I understand, the game is big enough that they have, like, 90 actors going into this. That is incredibly interesting. Yeah, it's it's a weird choice to make, because I feel like even with the release of, like, 428 and stuff, like, that's just not a style of game <laughs> that we see. Like, even FMV is like, really gone out of its way, but then to also use, like, pictures for this, you know, for, like, visual novels and stuff just feels so... It feels so alien. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I never got around to playing it. I've heard sort of mixed things about it, but I... That This kind of makes me more interested in it as, a, at the very least, like a curiosity as something to, like, see how they try to translate that sort of thing. Yeah, I can imagine that's interesting. And then, uh, finally, uh, something a little more close to, you know, something I'm interested in. Kazuki Takahashi, the creator of the Yu-Gi-Oh! series, is publishing a short manga soon in a weekly Shonen Jump called The Comic with a Q. And this is the first thing he's done since the manga for the Yu-Gi-Oh! 5Ds. So it's it's just neat to see him, like, you know, back doing something after such a long hiatus where really he just gets to act as, like, supervisor now and just rake in all of the, rake in all of the, the rights money. Finally, he can escape card games. That's right. I mean, he, ha- he hasn't had to touch that in a while, but yeah, he's trying to do something new for, I think it's the 50th anniversary of Weekly Shonen Jump, focusing on sort of like a rookie manga creator and sort of like a story around him and his like secret to, to art. 
So oh. I don't know if it's going to like have attachments to like biographical stuff or anything, but that could be neat to see. All right. And they're also they're also doing a new Ruby manga. Another one? Yeah, so there was the one by um Shiro Miwa before this who like did character design like Joker game and Kiz Naver and things like that, but this was sort of like their first bigger project. And hmm. yeah, they they now have a different manga coming out by I think it's a newcomer I couldn't find any information on this person besides the announcement of this manga named Bunta Kinami. But, like, it's fascinating how much Japan has latched on to Ruby, right? Like, given that Ruby is, like, a very American interpretation of a lot of big anime tropes and things like that, then to see it, like, return back to Japan and be just as popular as, like, a, a, a look into, like, American animation is just... It's a weird cultural exchange. <laughs> oh, yeah, very weird. Because, like, they got things where, like, you know, full seasons were being played in theaters and stuff, right? Like, they're getting the same sort of treatment that we get with anime movies in the theater. That's so baffling. Yeah, so, I mean, good on Ruby, right? Like, clearly they're doing something right. They're keep, they continue to pull these people in. And they continue to, you know, do really well with the, the new seasons and stuff. So, yeah, good on them. It's kind of cool. <laughs> like, yeah. But that's kind of everything I had to say. I had one thing to oh, say. Yeah, what? I was just going to say uh, the, the Punchline video game came out. It got a, uh, a Western release. Uh, that's right. It finally did actually release. Oh, that reminds me. Where did my copy go? But, uh, yeah, so... Just wild that that finally came out. Again, like, two years after Punchline the anime came and after the game came out in Japan, we're finally seeing a release. So, if you want to explore the world of Punchline again, then you have a chance. And and I think we talked about this before, where the game has multiple endings and branching points that let you sort of escape the story of the show and see, like, very different parts of this this particular story, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, you can get an ending in the game that is not the one that happens in the show, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, like, it's a good way of producing something that can have consequences, right? Like, I think a lot of issues with anime licensed games of yore were like, oh, they're like side stories that can't really affect the characters in any way. But because this is such a tight story, and because it's, you know, based around sort of repeating time and trying these new things, you are more open to giving all of these branching paths and ideas to, like, really expand on what you expect out of the game. I, like, it's just, it's really cool, and I, I wonder how much of this was, like, planned ahead of time by Uchikoshi, you know? I mean, given the whole repeating loop mechanic of the show itself, I can de it definitely feels like a visual novel adaptation, even though it wasn't one to begin with. Yeah, totally. It and the the whole thing just screams Uchikoshi in that particular style. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah, it's I want to check it out. It's cool, but also, uh, no one else is allowed in the house while I'm playing it. I don't need to answer <laughs> the questions about punchline. Uh. Alright, so, let's talk about anime now. Yeah! And to start off the discussion of last season's anime, let's talk about, I think, the biggest surprise that we had. 
this was one that we talked about sort of being interested in just because of the the idea behind it, right? So this is Planet With. And if you remember before, this is this is created by Satoshi Mizukami, who probably better known for works like uh, Lucifer and Biscuit Hammer. But this is a story that like had this particular release so that the anime and the manga would more or less match up release-wise so that there weren't any issues with worrying about spoilers or speculation that could get in the way of enjoying the same experience as everyone else. Yeah, that's really unique. Yeah, so it's a very fast-moving series because of that, but it is fully fleshed in a way that is, like, very surprising. Yeah, it doesn't feel rushed or anything is definitely a point for it. Like, it, like while it feels like it could have slowed down in places, it doesn't feel like we're really missing anything. Mm-hmm. So, the main plot of this story is that there's a there's a high schooler named Soya who has amnesia and one day he finds that his town is attacked by something called a nebula weapon. It seems like some sort of like extraterrestrial advi- device. And there are seven superheroes within the town that can sort of like reach an- another level of humanity and like develop this psychic armor that lets them fight these extraterrestrials. And Soya, in seeing them, sort of recognizes from his past that these are attached to the thing that destroyed his original planet, because he's not originally from Earth. And so with his live-in family, uh, Ginkgo and Sensei the cat, he fights against these psychic soldiers and sort of, like, really starts to understand what's going on in the world. You know, what, what's causing these soldiers to appear, what's happening to these nebula weapons, and why all this is happening. It's worth mentioning that, uh, to talk about the fast pace again, he gets over his amnesia at the end of the very first episode. Yeah, so, uh, one thing I have heard discussed about this show is that it's basically like a 52-episode series condensed into 12. <laughs> I mean, I'd say it's a 26-episode series condensed into 12, but the same sort of principle applies. Yeah, it, it's a multi-season story told within 12 episodes, and, like, you can really tell that because of how fast these revelations come out. Like, it feels like every episode is actually, like, two episodes because of how they cut the commercial breaks and everything. You feel like you leave on sort of a bigger revelation or something uneasy to set up the next part. Yeah. Like, I definitely watched this and was like, oh, that would definitely be a commercial break, or yeah, that would definitely be an episode break, but it it wasn't within the actual episode that I was watching. Yeah, it definitely works to his advantage because it, it doesn't feel like it's wasting your time. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it gets to the bare essentials. Well, not just the bare essentials, but like, it really gets to the core of the interactions that it needs to, to set up these different parts of the story and kind of move things along with the characters while also making enough time to move the plot forward. Yeah. I think one of the show's strongest aspects is that you have a very reasonable idea of why all of the characters in the show are fighting how they are. Like, no one is this inexplicable force that's fighting because the plot says so. Everybody has a concrete reason for their actions, and it you can get a little empathy for every character because of it. 
Yeah, not to say those don't change throughout the 12 episodes, because they change throughout those 12 episodes, but, like, you always understand the intentions of each character. Yeah. They're always laid out in front of you in a way that's easy to understand. I think one other thing I want to talk about without going into spoilers is how really weird the mech design is for this show, because it's definitely very unique compared to everything else. It's very animalistic, which makes sense since a lot of the mech stuff does in fact involve, like, extraterrestrial animals turning into mechs. Yeah. But yeah, like, even with the psychic soldiers and stuff, they, they have very animalistic sort of, like, uh, builds to them. Yeah, and I think it gives them kind of a bit more character to them. I think, like, it gives you, you know, a bit of a look into their personality. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it, it's made very clear all these characters' personalities. It's all very well done in a way that, like, oh, yeah, you you never forget who a character is. And I think that's, like, a, another good benefit of it is Planet With makes sure every character they show is important in some way and that you will see them again. Yeah, even when you don't expect them to. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. It's really it's really hard to talk about this show without spoilers because so much happens in it, but I can't say anything. Yeah, it's- and, and if you go in with this show thinking like it's any other mech series, like your your Gundams or stuff like that, it's it's very not, right? It's a much more human story and about very emotional conflicts. Right? It's it's not about a bigger war. It's about these ideas involving sort of like the evolution of species and whether or not you can uh you can trust people to to be able to like learn from their mistakes. Yeah, learn from their mistakes and be able to to grow without constant supervision in a way that is beneficial to everyone else. I think another the- strong theme in there is the cycle of revenge. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because that's what sets this whole thing off, and then it almost immediately, like, is realized to be like, oh, this is, like, really shitty, actually. Yeah. I think you know what scene I'm talking about that's, like, halfway through the show that deals with with how empty our main character feels after it's realized, and... Yeah. Yeah, and that's a really good scene. Yeah. I... (laughs) Personally, I almost wish Planet With were the 24-episode length that it seems to, like, be uh, structurally. Like, I kind of wish I had more time with these characters. Yeah, because they're all really likable. Yeah, and, like, there's definitely, like, gonna be differing opinions on how much room there should be to breathe between these things. Like, I kind of wish there was a little bit more, but understanding that it is what it is, it still doesn't detract, I think, from the overall narrative and what it's trying to hit. Yeah, it definitely has a strong core to it that shines through. Yeah, for sure. It just moves fast. Yeah. In the way that you might expect a story that is simultaneously releasing as a manga and an anime might in an attempt to keep one from spoiling the other. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... But yeah, it would, Planet With is a real treat to watch. Yeah, and it really does defy expectations a lot in terms of, like, you expect the themes to start one way and it switches gears later on and then does it again as you sort of, like, are given more information about the world. Yeah, and it manages to dole out that information at a pretty reasonable pace. 
Yeah, totally. And the character designs are charming. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I like all the character designs, especially for our uh, our good friend Sensei and the Generalissimo. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that the, like, biggest supernatural force in space are just, like, basically, like, Animal Crossing characters is, <laughs> is really something else. Like, it really, like, lets you know this is going to be, like, weird early on in comparison to other shows of its type. I mean, I think you could tell it was going to be weird when you saw the appearance of the first Nebula weapon. Oh, no, certainly. But, like, if you look at the art for it, it's like, oh, okay, this is like a cat-ish sort of mech, but uh, everything else sort of, like, you know, matches together with these anime ideas. But as soon as you see, like, uh, you know, as soon as you see Sensei, you're like, oh, all right. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that happens first. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying from from like concept art to to the show you're given like a stark contrast of like no this is what you're in for. <laughs> but yeah, I Planet With was good and I was I was genuinely surprised by it in like a really good way. Yeah, I like it a lot. I definitely recommend it and it's nice that I can recommend a a shorter series to to folks. Oh yeah, totally. Like it's it's definitely one of the more solid like self-contained series that we've gotten this year. Yeah. And speaking of that, a show that, again, I think, like, really defied expectation was uh, Shoujo Kageki Review Starlight, which you watched. Yes, I did. So, uh, Review Starlight is about these nine girls that go to a theater school... I forget what the actual name of it is, but it's it's basically an entirely theater-focused school to get them hyper-focused into acting, singing, dancing, all that sort of stuff. And one day, uh, a mysterious transfer student arrives, uh, which is one of the nine girls, named uh, Hikari, and she has, a, has an important childhood promise with uh, the other main character of the show, Karen. And uh, eight of these girls get invited to this mysterious audition where they have to battle against each other with very stylistic theater conflict fights and the winner of these battles this round robin style sort of battles uh, is going to become the top star and everyone is fighting to obtain this and Karen kind of intrudes on this in the first episode and jumps in fights the battle to protect her friend and it basically goes on from there, and it is a very much a character study about these characters, as well as the difficulties of uh, of, uh, of growth. Oh, so yeah, it it is very much what people thought when they're like, oh yeah, this looks like a uh, revolutionary girl lieutenant. Yeah, it it kind of is. It's also definitely a, it's also definitely as gay as lieutenant. Oh, I. <laughs> Just seeing screenshots, I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. This is all Lieutenant. <laughs> this is... But just with yeah. like a very, a more theatrical sort of tone to it, or a very different sort of theatrical tone. Yeah, it does. Not that I've actually seen Utena at all, but I mean, the way the fights play out with them literally on a stage with props and backdrops showing up to do these fights is really, really neat. Mm-hmm. But the fights are also really good because they all help develop these characters a bit more. They all help them grow as people. It's not, oh, hey, a cool fight. There is 
purpose in all of these fights that are had, and it's really, really interesting to see how these how these nine girls grow and change over the course of these episodes and just become better people. This is another show that's hard to talk about without spoilers because, like, one thing I can say is that the show seems to start off fairly weak because uh, you don't really have any reason to care about Karen and Hikari and their childhood promise until, like, a couple of episodes in when we actually get more more background information about what happened between the two of them and what kind of relationship Hikari and Karen have. And then after that, they start going into and developing the other characters, and we get to see, like, little vignettes of what their deals are. And not even every episode is about a fight that Karen has. The focus is on the fights that other characters have instead of just ones that Karen has. And it's it's really interesting to see how these clashes change over time. And all the fights are set to, like, musical songs that, like, are very direct references to the conflicts they're having, like, emotionally and characteristically, right? Like... Yes, very much so. Uh, this is <laughs> this is one thing that the official subs do not do, is translate these extremely important contextual songs, probably because of either licensing rights or they couldn't, or they didn't have enough time to do so, but this is like one of the few situations where I'd actually go and say, hey, if you want to watch this, you really need to go look at look for fan subs because they translate the song lyrics and those are kind of important to the character development. Yeah, and it might be a case where like they're waiting for the official release to give out these rights. So once that's done, they'll go and update the subs. Like I know Funimation did that a lot when they were picking up exclusive shows. Like halfway through, they'd get the official lyrics for like the OP of a of an anime and they would go back and they would add those in. Ah. I assume something similar would happen with Review Starlight given that they're important to the story, right? Like yeah. The fact that this is so integral to the plot and these characters, it feels like one of those things they'd have to go back and do. Yeah. And this shows choreography not just during the fights but the way it's framed and shot during all the all of the different episodes is all really, really tight and and good. It's it's got a good sense of style about itself, and it helps you know keep its thematics very strong. Mm-hmm. So, uh, before we continue with that, since it seems like you're pretty set on not not spoiling people again, like we were with Planet yeah. With, because it it's it's a show based on style and characterization in a way that like benefits a watch, right? Yeah, it's very hard to explain that this sort of stuff like with Planet With because of it doesn't shift quite as fast as Planet With obviously, but when it does shift, it changes the dynamics of the show in a very major way. Okay. So, a couple of things then just before we go, uh mm-hmm. what about Banana? Uh, explain Banana to me. I see everyone seems to be way into the banana-haired girl and I I don't know anything besides the banana hair. She is just a really good character. That's pretty <laughs> much all there. Like, this is another one of those spoiler cases. I can't talk about it because she, like, she is a really good character because of those spoilers. But also she makes everything bananas. And she has a banana phone cover case. And she says, banana ice. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at this character's name. And it is, uh, Die Banana. That just- yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, 
overall, it's it's a really fun show. It's got the 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 top star element is a nice surreal element that kind of adds to the mystery of the show. And I think, you know, it's nice that shows just have this surreal thing in it that isn't overly explained why this is happening. It's just a thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's just got a nice cast of characters, a nice sense of style. I just really enjoyed it. It's got a nice satisfying ending, too. Alright, cool. Now, for something I just watched, and is predominantly based around girls and choreographed sequences that are more about defining a character than the action that they're actually doing, Hanebato. So, Hanebato is the badminton anime, and as much as it is about, like, playing badminton, sort of, like, understanding why you play a sport even if you're not, like, the best at it and you recognize that, it is also, like, a lot more invested in the fact that the way that they play defines their characters and how these characters evolve and develop. And so, Hanebato is... It's also not a sports anime in the way that, like, you really feel like everyone's having fun when they do the sport, and it's about how fun the sport is. Uh, A lot of the time, you feel like badminton is the most grueling and, like exhausting sport in the world based on the way these characters play their matches. Yikes! Yeah, it's it's very heavy on the dramatics, and I think in a way that works, right? But it's like, everything about like the art, you know, like the, the concept art and the opening and the ending are all like very kind of upbeat and cheery, and then when you get into the episode, it's people like literally about ready to like break their knee playing this game because they need to prove something in the court or you know these people like breaking down (laughs) because of the the way the match is going it's it's not a fun watch and i think that's something that should be said about it (laughs) so the main focus is on this character named ayano who is a first year student at this high school and she's really good at Batman. She not only has, like, pretty good natural ability, but she's also spent a lot of her younger life sort of practicing and developing her skills. But she's very avoidant of it now that she's entered high school. She wants to escape that part of her life because her mother at one point abandoned her, seemingly because she was not good enough at badminton. Her mother's, like, a world-class player who's won several, like, world championships and just leaves one day after Ayano is, like, unable to beat her and, like, has these issues with the way that she's playing. And so she is eventually dragged back into the, the badminton club where suddenly all of these characters directly related to her trauma suddenly show up from other schools and play against her. And... As much as the story is about other characters, especially, like, um, Nagisa, who's this third-year student who has, like, physical issues that stop her from being able to play her best in badminton, is, like, Ayano is the, is the central character here as she sort of, like, re-explores why she likes badminton and, you know, what what it means when she gets on the court and why she plays. Okay, when... Y- when you said it was heavy on the drama, I did not expect that heavy on the drama. Oh no, absolutely. And like one of the later characters that becomes like Ayano's rival is literally the girl that her mother like adopted and turned into a badminton like uh prodigy. 
What? Yeah, no, it's it's insane. Like second episode, you learn that her mother left to like a European country and picked up this girl named Connie, who became a new like badminton prodigy. And then later, mom comes back and tries to act like none of this is weird. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so that's the show you're getting into when you watch Hane Bado. And like, it does the dramatics really well. It's very heavy on dramatics, but I think for the most part, it does it really well. Like, and especially the way that it is able to balance sort of these more lighthearted moments where they're outside of the club and they're just like being friends. And then when it comes to actual badminton and the way that it sort of like really feels like Ayano is like playing out of spite and this very different sort of like motivation and how that changes throughout the series. So it manages to have this heavy sense of drama, but without it feeling too ridiculous. It's believable. Or it makes itself believable. Yeah, the only, like, kind of, like, comical part of it is the fact that the uh, the way that they demonstrate that Ayano is sort of, like, breaking on the court is that she gets sort of those horror anime eyes where, like, the pupils disappear, and they'll just draw her like that for the whole thing. And so it really does look like she's gonna murder someone. Terrifying. Yeah, I think it's a good show. I think overall it does it uh, what it wants to do really well. What I understand from the, the manga is that it had a real, like, identity crisis early on on what, how to balance sort of, like, comedic elements and, um, and dramatic elements. And the anime seems to have smoothed that out a lot. There are only one or two scenes where it's, like, really pulls into this weird state of jokiness that feels, like, wrong, given the, the scenes before and after it. But, like, for the most part, they've really, they really ironed this out in a way that's, like, it is a, a an almost pure dramatic story from front to back and, like, ends on a really hopeful note for all the characters about, like, rediscovering why they play even in the face of all this different sort of adversity that they run into. Hmm, nice. It's a good show, I think. And it's just, don't go in expecting it to be, like, fun, because it really isn't. <laughs> so next up, Let's talk about uh, some shows for kids. And the first one up is Professor Layton, Cat's Mystery Solving Files, which you've continued with and continued your frustration with. Yep, it's it's something. It uh, I, I said this the last time I talked about it, but the quality of the show is all over the place because for this season and last season, a show is, the show has been one of four things. It's either been... A good original episode that screams that this is definitely Professor Layton that makes me scream with how ridiculous the plot twists are and how much less sense everything makes once it's explained. <laughs> a mystery that's just kind of bad and uninteresting. A case from the game. Or once a season, you get plot. <laughs> Alright. Yeah, and like, the back half of season two has been all cases from the game, and it's incredibly frustrating. I thought that they would kind of work that out of their system after season one, but no. They they need to pull more cases from the game that you that for some reason you haven't played, even though you're watching this show about characters from the game. Okay, are they out of cases at this point? No. Okay. 
Because I, I I thought the game was like relatively short in terms of cases. But may, are they like multiple episode things? No. Some of those cases get long. Okay. No, they are not. I After next week's episode, I think there is going to be exactly one case from the game that they haven't done yet. And it's the final case. Okay, which they're probably saving for, like, the end of their 50-episode run. Oh, God. Uh, having that be the finale would frustrate me. No, they're probably going to save the final episode of plot for that. Maybe, yeah, but, like, closer to the end. Yeah. So hopefully Season 3 will have more good original content and less cases from the game, because it's getting really frustrating at this point. Yeah, I can understand that. Like, th- there's definitely a, a difference between, say... Uh, Persona 5 the animation where you're going expecting to see most of the same content you have and this thing that like can't decide whether it's an adaptation or its own set of stories yeah because I thought it was going to be its own set of stories when I started watching this but and it was for a bit I think more so like I thought early on it was all like different cases yeah a bit more in season one yeah so I, I understand where that becomes like a frustrating issue for sure yeah, especially since next week's episode is the third week in a row that it has been a case that has been straight from the game. Jeez, that's a that's a streak. Ugh. Yeah, but hopefully they're running out. Oh, they they are almost out of cases from the game. So hopefully I will get to see some more good original content next season. Or if I don't, I'm gonna drop the show because one episode of plot is also getting to be incredibly frustrating. <laughs> yeah. You think maybe if they run out of games, like, oh, right, we should do more plot stuff, too. But we'll find out. Yeah. Like, this is the, this feels like the longest build-up to the announcement of another game, like, in the universe. That is what fills me with the most dread, honestly. That it's just a build-up <laughs> to, oh, you thought you were going to get the plot in this show? Well, too bad. Go ask your parents for money to buy this game. <laughs> Oh, well, we can only hope. Yeah. That it's, it's, it becomes its own distinct thing better than that. Yeah. (laughs) And then my big show for children was Cells at Work. Well, I guess it's not just for children, but like, it's framed in the edutainment way that you might expect it to be for younger audiences. Oh, it's framed that way, huh? Yeah, so Cells at Work uh, is the is the Osmosis Jones anime. It's not really. <laughs> um, it's, it's it takes itself and like it, it really focuses on this sort of edutainment look at biology and stuff. the The focus is on teaching you how your body works by turning all of your bodily processes into like anime events. Hmm. So you have like a focal point, you have the one red blood cell that you focus on and the one white blood cell that seems to show up a lot. And yeah, it's it's just like telling you what happens in your body in different situations. Like, you know, the second episode is like, oh, there's this scrape wound and it's how, you know, bacteria goes in and how your body sort of like fights against these different things and closes up the wound. And then there are other ones like, oh, the person gets food poisoning or allergies or heat stroke like it it has this very diverse look at all of these different things your uh, like a healthy body may go through and just like what your body does to counteract that huh and it's it's really charming in that way so like every time that you meet like 
a group of platelets. The plate, it'll be like, oh, these are the platelets. This is what they do in the body and how they interact with these different things. And they're all sort of like, more or less like kind of anime tropey sort of like character archetypes for each of these different um, parts of the body, but like in a very charming way, right? Like they're characterized just enough to for you to understand like, oh, you know, this is shorthand for this, this is shorthand for this, that kind of thing. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's a very cute show and gets like surprisingly dark near the end where it's like the, the last two episodes are a two-parter about someone going into hemorrhagic shock. What? And like what it's like in your body to like basically lose so much blood that you are uh, near death. And just the way that, like, your body functions on the inside and how that, you know, sort of the emergency routines it uses that end up hurting it more than helping it. It's like, again, it's just, like, surprisingly dark for when they start out with, like, oh, this guy has allergies and these, like, doofy sort of, like, globby uh, cedar pollen pieces show up and, like, aren't really dangerous, but they're big, so they scare everyone. And it's like, oh, all of the blood cells died because all the blood shot out of this man's body from his shock that he got into. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it goes places, but like, yeah, just overall, Cells at Work is a very charming show. And like, you you interact with the same characters in their archetypes that like, you you do build a little bit of a connection with them. And apocryphally, I've heard that certain like message boards on the internet have reported that there are people that are like eating and eating better and exercising and stuff to protect the little anime characters that live inside their body, which if that's true, God bless cells at work for what it does. <laughs> like the idea, oh, people are drinking more water, you know, to take care of themselves and they're eating healthier. Like, oh, great. It feels like they could be like textbook mascots. Yeah, totally. It, it does give off like, it's half a textbook and half a manga, for sure. And, like, through this, a lot of people have discovered, like, the spinoffs, like Cells at Work Black, which takes place in a man who is overweight and doesn't take care of himself and has sex with strangers, so, like, constantly getting VDs. And, like, it just takes place in, like, a nightmare world. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, the darker, edgier spinoff. It, it totally is, too, because, like, it, it uses a male red blood cell instead of, like, the female one from the original series, and the male white blood cell gets turned into this, like, big titty, <laughs> this big titty warrior who, like, has half her shirt unbuttoned for no reason. It's... Amazing. Yeah, it has a, it has a multiple spinoffs all by different authors and stuff that are just, like, different bodily things that happen and, like, how they affect the body. Like, there's one that's, like, bacteria at work, and I think there's one that's called cells that don't work, which is, like, <laughs> I, I assume about the more, like, latent parts of your body. <laughs> but yeah, it, and, like, cells at work is not unwilling to get ridiculous, where, like, when it does, like, its episode on, like, cancer cells, it's basically like you're watching, like, an entire arc of Dragon Ball Z and the way that they do it. Like, there are so many takes on, like, sort of, like, these these particular like shonen anime tropes and the way that these characters interact and fight and stuff and it's like comically violent in like a kill bill way where like uh, a white blood cell will attack a bacteria and blood will just spurt out over half the screen 
Hell yeah, I love anime osmosis jokes. But yeah, no, it's it's a it's just a very charming, simple show. Like it it doesn't try to be anything more than like educational and entertaining, and it definitely captures both of those really well. Yeah, it sounds really charming. Yeah, it's good. And now, the last of our explicitly for children shows, Gundam Build Divers, aka Dot Hack with Robots. Tell me about it. Ah, Gundam Build Divers. Gundam Build Divers is a fun, dumb show about kids and a couple uh, older folk playing an MMO about gunpla, and it's not, and it's, and it's another fucking toy commercial. Right. Oh well, of course it is. It's Gundam. Yeah. But yeah. It's just more explicitly one. Yes. It is very fun and kind of, it, it's it's very paint by numbers a lot of the time. Like the best parts of the show are when they're just goofing off doing MMO things and just having a good time with their friends in MMO like just doing stuff that you would do in an MMO, like, oh, we're gonna take on this quest together. Oh, there's a special event. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we're gonna bond with our gunpla. Oh, let's have a fighting tournament with our gunpla and show who's the strongest. And it's just, it's very goofy and silly. And then it, and then like the back half of season two. Oh, hey, here's a plot. Hey, remember when the, the character that's basically Aura is here? Well, she's basically Aura. And now because she's a bug in the system, we must destroy her. No, we must fight the mods to protect our anime girl who is created by the love everyone has for their gunpla. <laughs> cool. It, it is the most anime, but it is just... It's so silly and so trite that, I don't know, I kind of like it. It's, it's definitely not a good show, but it is a fun show some of the time, and there's like a million dumb Gundam references, like the, the group of people that are all just Gundam characters in masks, or just a bunch of other like goofy Gundam references. There, there's a lot of good stuff in the show, and I mm-hmm. it's just a, a fun, silly watch. Some nice junk food. But I do have to mention that the best part of the entire show is when everybody uh, meets up IRL after the plot is done, and we just get to see them hanging out IRL at uh, a karaoke bar, and it's great. That's good. Great. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a fun, goofy show. It's not like none of the characters are really anything special. I still wish Koichi had been the protagonist because it seems like he has the most character out of any of the characters, but. Oh well, what can you do? Yeah. And it's also like one of the few, again, it's one of the few shows that does this MMO concept that not everybody would want to be a plain normal human. There are cat girls. There are furries of many shapes and sizes. There are elves piloting Gundams. It shows a nice variety in the kinds of people who you would see online and their personalities, and I think that's cute. Yeah, I remember seeing a couple um, Harus as well, I think it is. Yeah, Haro- the, the Haros. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's great because the Haros are the guest ap- character avatars. Oh, that's cool. Also, like, when you invite your friend over to play and you don't want to get them a new account. Yeah. Ah, oh, that rules. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's just, it's just a goofy, silly anime. It's, it's not going to blow you away or anything, but it's just, you know, fun. Yeah, all right, great. As far as another popcorn show that I ended up watching... Harukana Receive, the beach volleyball anime. So I watched this with a friend who was interested in it, and it's not a booby show. Uh, Very, very little to the to the booby action in this show. It's it's an ass show, though. (laughs) 
<laughs> it is a show that, for good volleyball reasons and not, is really fascinated with the asses of these characters. Ah, a new Keijo. That's right. Well, I mean, they don't use <laughs> they don't use them in the same way that you might in a Keijo, but yes. But yeah, Harukana Receive is like a perfectly acceptable sports show. It's not really great at anything, but like nothing about it is like so bad that you'd want to that you might want to stop watching. I didn't think it's like just right in the middle of like, oh yeah, this is a comfort food show where every and especially in comparison to Hanebato, it's like everyone loves the thing they do, and so they do it. Like the very little drama to go with these characters, a little bit of like inter-character sort of stuff, but nothing that's like all-encompassing. It's mostly just these characters having fun and enjoying themselves playing a sport that they all enjoy. It sounds like you started watching this as a counterbalance to Hanebato. It really feels that way after the fact, yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, these characters have fun and they do what they want to do. It, it, I was reasonably charmed by the characters and they all have these very cute designs, they play off each other well, and the action gets the point across with a bit of flair, though like, not to the same degree as other sports anime like Haikyuu. It doesn't aspire for anything more than that, and I think that's perfectly fine. So now, <laughs> I don't I, I don't know what to say about this show, but you watched Asabi Asabase. Asabi Asabase, I can say, is my problematic fave of the season. I yeah, I've heard that it it is uh, weird humor, and sometimes that weird means gross act. Uh, mm, well, I'll talk about that. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, Asabi Asabase is a <laughs> is a fucking show about dunking on your friends as hard as possible and incredible re- over the top reaction faces. Asabi Asabase is a fake out show because the opening of the show. Makes you think this is going to be a cute girls doing cute things anime. It is not. It is definitely not. <laughs> yeah, having seen those characters, uh, I, I would be hard-pressed to call them cute all the time. Yeah. So, <laughs> it is It is a show that has some really good-ass humor. It is occasionally gross, but it also has some nice joke continuity to it, which helps keep the humor up to a very good quality. I... Uh... It is it is a very spiteful sort of comedy, and it makes me and it made me laugh a lot during it. But also, uh, like after a few episodes, uh oh, there's a problematic bit. It was a uh, a sequence called Loaded Questions, and oops, it's transphobic. Whoops. Ah. Uh, uh. Yeah, and I thought, okay, well. Good, I can just tell people to skip this, because it's not like that's going to become a recurring character or anything. Whoops, that's a recurring character, and the same uncomfortable atmosphere happens every time that character shows up. Whoops. Oof, that's rough. Yeah, at least they didn't show up too much, and the rest of the show is really funny and high quality. God, it is also a very gross show, as you mentioned, but... Uh, the transphobic parts make me not able to recommend this show to anybody, which is why I'm calling it my problematic fave of the season. Also, the ending is an incredibly big departure from the ending, featuring death metal. Oh! It's great. It is one of my favorite dumb jokes in the show, is the 
the the massive gap between the OP and the ED. And I remember hearing that, like, it had a lot of, like, sections where it would even escape sort of, like, animation and do, like, puppet sequences. Oh, those those are just doofy, dumb post-credit jokes. Oh, okay. Those are also really good. Uh, but yeah, uh, if, if you are um, able to withstand that there is a character that transphobia follows around, then you should watch Asabi Asabase. But if that's not your thing, then don't watch it, because uh, it, it is my problematic fave of the season. Yeah, good good to put that out there in the front then, you know. Especially if it's going, if it does end up like, oh yeah, it's a recurring character, then that's gonna- Yeah, I think they show up like, three or four times. Mm-hmm. And like, the episodes are usually like, three joke sections of jokes, but it's often enough that- <sighs> Sure. So, my comedy of the season was Mr. Tonegawa Middle Management Blues, which is a spinoff of the Ultimate Survivor Kaiji series, which, if you're not familiar, is the story of a a man named Kaiji who constantly finds himself in, like, millions of yen worth of debt and has to play these very elaborate sort of, like, death gambles in order to pay off what he owes. And this story within it is about... Before the first death gamble of Kaiji, it's about the management team of the Tei organization who set it up, kind of like trying to figure out how to get this money back and entertain the like hyper capitalist boss that they have who constantly demands attention and uh, entertainment. And so, like, no one wants to uh, fight against him, so they have to just keep going with his more and more, like, inane demands for things. So, like, half the episodes are about, oh, we have to deal with this guy and putting together this death game, and um, so far through the first season, they're, like, setting up all of this stuff for the first game, which is this rock-paper-scissors thing that happens on a uh, on a cruise ship. And so, like, it, it goes between that and sort of, like, just the troubles of having to work in such a hostile environment as this. Mm. So, even without the the connection to Kaiji, you still get a lot of comedy episodes that are just about kind of dealing with the least likable boss in the world, which works if you're, like, familiar with sort of that, that office experience, right? You may recognize yourself in some of these characters or people you've worked with before, and... It's charming. It's not always laugh-out-loud funny, but they really sell every joke. So I think you're you're at least, you know, you're at least guaranteed, like, a, you know, chuckles, if not actual, like, guffaws for the way that they do their jokes. And it goes from things like, oh, you know, I'm dealing with going on this business trip and having to keep everyone in check and trying to keep them happy after a really bad situation to, like, oh... One of the guys who got fired is now trying to get me into, like, this weird Ponzi scheme that, <laughs> class that he started, where, you know, he's very clearly going to get arrested for, like, this w- fraud thing that he's bought into. And so it goes through these different things, and, like, definitely the, the best part of the show is based on an, an understanding of Kaiji, where, like, you expect all of these people behind this to be sort of, like, 
cruel and sort of like terrible people, but like you get to the situation where like, oh, they've built these tables that they use for the the rock, paper, scissors things, because you're supposed to like drop cards in as sort of like limiting the number of actions you can make during the game. And like they don't have the electronics to work it, so they start building these elaborate setups inside so that humans can handle it. And so it's like, oh, this guy built a tiny uh cat cafe under his table so that he would be able to sit there for four hours at a time. Or one guy has this sweet gaming rig set up within this tiny cramped space. So, like, it feels a lot about, like, diffusing a lot of the the terror of the original series in a way that I it definitely makes it hard to recommend to anyone who isn't already familiar with the series. So it's very much a, a supporting se- series, then. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you might enjoy the part where a guy accidentally walks in on, like, an eating challenge and has to, like, fight his way through it because he's too much of a man to give up. But so much of it is reliant on sort of this this referential humor to Kaiji where, like, oh, you know, this character brings out this grill so they can do this great, like, uh, this great, like, barbecue. And it turns out that grill is one of the, like, torture devices they use in Kaiji to, like, more or less, like, burn someone as they have to, like, um, bow in front of someone for forgiveness. And so, like, that's that's the big, like, ironic twist of that. So, yeah, it does expect a, a recognition that makes it hard to watch if you haven't watched, you know, all 52 episodes of the show from 2006. So, it's good, but it's gonna be hard if you're not already a fan of the of the overarching series. Hmm. Nice. Is there anything you're looking forward to in Season 2? Um, so, yeah, we have one more core of this, and I'm not sure what's gonna happen with Season 2. I don't know if maybe it's gonna go, like, behind the scenes of, like, the, the actual gamble that Kaiji goes through, or if it's gonna start going up until... So, at the start of the first episode, it, like, reminds you that the main character, uh, Mr. Tonegawa, ultimately loses a, a match with Kaiji and is forced to... Um, bow down on top of this giant grill and sort of like that's the point where we lose his character in kaiji the series so i wonder if it's all building up to that or if we're just going to get more sort of like kind of surreal slice of lifey stuff going in forward but it'll be interesting to see what they do with it if they decide to go like all the way up to where this character exits kaiji all right now once again, our checkup on the slowest consistent show on our list, which is today's menu at the Emia family. Yeah, it's still really fun and charming to watch. I, uh, there's no, there's been really not many changes <laughs> here. Like, you know what you're getting into by now if you haven't watched this show. It's the fate cast just having some nice slice of life adventures with no real threats to their well-being or whatever. Featuring, hey, you can cook this really tasty meal if you watch this show, because the steps that they put in there are pretty dang accurate. I will say this, uh, the most recent episode, October's, Shiru made a karage, and dang, did that sure make me want to try making some chicken nuggets myself. (laughs) Hey, you know that, I mean, that's kind of what you'd want out of that show, right? Like, if they're going to be making food, you'd want to be like, oh, that food looks good. I mean, yeah, they they go into a lot of good detail with the animations and the process, and it all looks really good. Mm-hmm. So still just, like, no expectation of, like, a twist at any point. This seems very, 
sincere in how it's just about this particular sort of thing. Yes, it is very much, it very much knows what it wants to be, and I can't imagine they would pull some kind of weird twist in the last two episodes. Okay, now, spinning off to the next, uh, to the next thing that I want you to talk about, uh, sorry, Fate Extra Last Encore Finale, the movie-length ending to the original show that you watched last season, or the season before this. Yes, I can finally actually give my thoughts on this because it actually, you know, had an ending this time. This was the ending. Mm -hmm. Very different than the other Fate thing you're watching. Yes, extremely. So, Fate Extra Last Encore is a show that much like uh, Mr. Tanagawa's Middle Management Blues, is a show that best feels as a complementary piece to the video game Fate Extra. A lot of what it does relies on you having knowledge of what goes on in Fate Extra, not, not just the setting, but also the characters themselves and the, the twists on those characters that happen to them, I don't think would have as much weight if you didn't actually play Fate Extra especially considering how the main conceit of uh, Last Encore is, what if the main character lost against the final boss? Which I think is a pretty interesting direction to take. But it falls off of that conceit, and a lot of changes happen to the characters that the, the protagonist met along the way, and it's really interesting to see those twists and how they play out. And... I think it's overall an enjoyable show if you do have that knowledge. The The finale did feel pretty satisfying to me, and I enjoyed seeing the end of, uh, of Hakuno and Nero's journey through the moon cell. But I don't feel I can recommend this show to anybody who hasn't played Fate Extra because you just wouldn't have that extra knowledge. Okay, so, so it does not work as standalone as, like, the, the more traditional Fate adaptations like your Fate Stay Night, Unlimited Blade Works, and such. Yeah. Okay. The only other thing I want to say is that uh, Hakuno and Nero, I think, work pretty alright as protagonists, with Hakuno being extremely deadpan and Nero being extremely energetic, and the two play off of each other pretty well. This show has a very good sense of style about itself, because Shaft is really good at that. Right. But, yeah, it, it's still a tough-to-recommend show unless you, like, know what the material is it's coming from, so... Oh, well, okay. that happens. Did it do the head tilt? Yes, it did. It did it Thank several God. times. It was pretty great. So, moving forward, we have uh, the quick list of dropped shows. And in terms of the, the ones that we singularly watch, they're both comedies. So, to start us off, talk about Grand Blue Dreaming. Grand Blue is a show about... Bad things that happen to you in college because you drink too much. <laughs> uh-huh. Brand Blue is a show where alcohol poisoning doesn't exist, and you can drink as much alcohol as you want until you puke and pass out and terrible things happen. But I stopped watching this because the first major arc was the worst part of Persona 4 with the cross-dressing pageant. So I just mm. said, turned around and said no. Yeah, that's a bad, that's a bad look and a bad first look for sure. I don't have anything else to say, really. I dropped out pretty early of Chio's School Road as well, because it's like, it seemed so inconsistent with its comedy. And like, it looked, I'm going to say pretty bad. Um, Chio's School Road just is kind of like an ugly anime. And 
its jokes are more or less based around the fact that the main character, Chio, is, like, insanely awkward. So, like, Chio School Road focuses on Chio, who is this girl who... And most of the jokes are based around things that happen as she's walking from... Or she's walking to school from her house. And a bunch of, like, misunderstandings that happen or, like, weird happenstance that go on. Like, oh, she accidentally... Um, knocks over this motorcycle that a, a biker owns and so she has to like pretend to be like a serious badass to try to get him to move away because if it came down to fights she just would not be able to do anything so it's like things like that or like her doing parkour to get around like um get around like construction and running into like terrible people that she enacts like vigilante style justice on but like the actual joke part of it is supremely inconsistent and like it it just feels like this show at least early on like as far as i got didn't know what kind of humor it wanted to be it didn't know like a style to stick with and so it's trying all these things and throwing up the wall and so few of them seem to actually work unless you're into sort of like that style of i guess cringe is the word i'm looking for like that very sort of awkward laughing at someone because of these circumstances happening to them sort of humor. Oof. And so it, it just didn't work for me, like, really at all. There were bits and pieces, but overall it just didn't feel like something worth sticking with. Alright. And then, the big drop. Both of us had to give up on Yu-Gi-Oh! Vrains. <sighs> Yu-Gi-Oh! Vrains. <laughs> It just got really boring more than anything else. And like, that's fucked up when you're talking about a show that takes place in VR where literally anything can happen. Yeah, it felt like they had a lot of budgetary issues making things look interesting. Yeah, and like, the the character stuff they're doing is still like, idea-wise, very neat. Because it's so much about sort of like, these villains trying to abuse the fact that these main characters are all dealt with these very traumatic situations in their life and sort of like gaslighting them and like taking advantage of them to try and get what they need out of them and it's like a triumphant story about how these characters sort of overcome that but like that's never the focus the focus is on the the bigger part of the plot which just isn't as interesting and none of the characters are written well enough for you to like feel really invested in the fact that these cool things are happening to them like just straight up like the whole thing like it's just such wasted potential and like in a way that like it doesn't make for a train wreck it just makes it for like a really boring sort of outcome yeah like i can explain when i dropped it which was like after a filler episode because that's what you need. You need filler in your anime original show. We got to find out, oh, this is when we finally learn the backstory between Kusanagi and Playmaker, and it's like, did did anybody really care about this? Like, Playmaker needs I to be a better character, because without that, he's just a big sourpuss. Yeah, and like, you could have had him grow. Like, he's gone through so much in the first season that, like, you know, the first arc, that's like, oh, this is the point where he realizes that he's being shitty about this, and he can now develop 
his character. And what he does instead, he's like, he just looks at the script and says, fuck you. (laughs) Like, that's how it feels. Like, the whole thing is just like, fuck you for expecting me to change. I'm still, like, just the least interesting Yu-Gi-Oh! protagonist. Uh, Yeah. Like, Soul Burner actually seems to have a character and had character development in the past, but it seems too little too late at this point? Yeah, and, like, even then, like, he's just stealing Spotlight from other characters. Yeah, that's the real fucked up part about this, is that, like we said last season, the a lot of the first season was, wow, check out how cool Soul Burner is. He can beat up all the old characters. Right, like, you build up all these old characters, and you're like, oh, check them out, like, they're neat, and they're they're playing into this idea that slowly, Yusaku's gonna make friends, and, like, the, Yusaku's just like, fuck you, to all that. And so, they end up becoming, like, side villains, where it's like, no, we need to prove ourselves in our own arc. And then they'll just, all, like, Soul Burner shows up just to being like, uh, no you don't. This is my story now. <laughs> Get out of there. So yeah, it's just such a... <sighs> There's so much wasted potential throughout the entirety of this show. <laughs> yeah, apparently the plot decided to come back after I dropped it, and it turned out that Dr. Kogami, with his plans of, oh, I must destroy the Ignis because they're evil, turns some of the Ignis evil because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. God damn it. Right, like, I, I, I looked at some of the stuff, too, after you talked about that, and it's literally just like... Oh yeah, I have now retroactively justified my experience because I have incited this war against these AIs, so now the AIs are fighting against me and becoming villainous. See? It's everything I said it would be. And <laughs> like, fuck off. Ugh. That's the most boring way that this could have developed, really. And they're doing the thing still where they're like, they're, they're reintroducing new, uh, old um, summoning concepts for all the different characters so that they can continue to try to, like, sell new um, anime cards to fans. And, like, mm-hmm. that's cool. I like that part of this whole thing. It's just, you know, the rest of it that's the issue. <sighs> you can't see it, but I'm shaking my head. It's it's just, man, show sh- this show so- should have been so much better. For a show that starts out with one of the characters using a card that is literally just called, like, DDoS Attack. It should have been so much better than it ended up being. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's, let's move, move on. on to better I, shows. Yeah, we can only get more mad from this, so let's <laughs> let's cut this out. So, the first one I want to talk about is Banana Fish, and before I discuss the story of Banana Fish, I want to put it out right away. This is a series that deals with a lot of sexual violence. It deals with topics of rape. It deals with uh, topics of child prostitution, things like that. And it is not afraid to be very upfront and direct about these things. There are situations in this story where there is, in fact, an implied rape scene. If these things are not comfortable to you, you may want to actually just skip this section of the podcast and the show because it that's that's what this is. This is a pulp show that deals with these subjects and is not 
afraid of them. So keep that in mind as we move forward. Banana Fish is is very much a pulp action series done in the way of, like, it, it really shows its age, right? Banana Fish was originally written in the 80s. And while the setting of the anime has been moved up to modern day, you really feel that sort of, like, I'm not going to say, like, unaware sort of thing about the 80s, but, like, it definitely feels like it comes from a different time, a different type of storytelling used to, like, shock and surprise viewers. The main focus is on a a boy named Ash Lynx, who is the adopted heir of a mafia leader named Dino Goldzing. And he is not only an adopted heir, but he's also being sold in Dino's, like, child prostitution ring that he runs to keep the money flowing. Um, So now Ash at 17, sort of like sick of the way that he's being treated under this, decides that he's going to break out from Dino and sort of like not only kill him, but sort of like rid all of uh, New York, which is where it's set, of like his influence. And a lot of this comes from the fact that Dino is also developing this like super drug called Banana Fish, which basically, like, put his brother into a vegetative state. His brother was in Iraq for the war and fed this drug, and it causes him to go berserk and kill his fellow platoon mates. It, it, it like, rotted his brains that he's, he was still living, but he can't, like, act on anything. And so the the main focus is on Ash and his story and sort of, like, breaking out of this just like horrible situation he comes from and and trying to make it on his own and sort of like figure out what happened to his brother and get vengeance for that. At the same time, Eiji Okamura, who was sort of this um, young photographer coming over from Japan to sort of like as like a, a like a, a study abroad sort of thing, he ends up getting roped in as he runs into Ash for the first time, sort of unknowing that all this is going to go down, and shit almost immediately goes down and sort of entwines Ash and Eiji's lives in a way that, like, brings them together not only as friends, but it seems pretty clearly from the first 12 episodes that they are also reaching, like, a romantic side of their relationship, but also this very gritty sort of crime story that they're telling. Huh. Yeah, Banana Fish is is a story that is definitely it's a long original manga series. Um I believe it's like a 19 volume series and it's being condensed into 24 episodes. So things I assume are being cut out and I assume a lot of it is like more of the the fluff parts of the story. More of the, like the the parts developing these uh these particular sort of like romantic relationship parts to make space for the tangled web of, like, mafia interactions and character drama that they've built out in this story. And it's it's a show that is very dark. It, it definitely goes to some dark places. Um, at one point, Ash is sent to prison for an action he takes against Dino. And it's an extremely pulp 80s prison where, like, literally the, the biggest threat is that Everyone in the prison inexplicably wants to, like, rape a person, right? 
Uh, like that, like that particular sort of fear, you know, that, that, that trope. And yeah, that, that's the story it's telling is one that is like, it, it doesn't exactly revel in the way that it uses sexual violence, but it's not scared of it. And it's, it's ever present in the narrative as like a, a threatening device, right? These are, these are the threats that this character deals with. And it's about the character fighting back against these things and sort of like, it's hard to say what the intention is because I I still have half this anime go to. I enjoy it for the action parts and what it's doing with these two characters' relationships. I think the character writing can be very entertaining in both its serious moments and the occasional comedic bits that they use, the more lighthearted bits in between these sort of action sequences. And I think the story is pretty gripping with how it delivers each beat and is able to escalate the stakes but like it gets to uncomfortable points and so it it can be difficult sometimes to stay with it especially since this is a weird translation choice but they they use a homophobic slur in the subtitles for this show on amazon that from what i understand is not present in the original and like is very much like a punching up of the story to try to fit that pulp narrative which is like that sucks. <laughs> yeah. This this sounds like this is your problematic fave of the season. Yeah, it's super that. It is so deeply rooted in this like problematic core that you can't escape that and if you enjoy the show you have to accept that that's what it is. That's what Banana Fish is, that's what it's doing. So, I don't think like it's wrong to enjoy this. I think it's just something you have to recognize for what it was at the time and what it looks like now, you know, t- 20 years after its release. No, almost 30 years after it started releasing as a manga. So, yeah. Yeah, that, this this sounds extremely displaced. Yeah, d- definitely. It, it definitely feels out of time. And like a lot of the things from the, you know, fr- from that time feel out of time at this point. You know, we... As a society, we have developed and changed so much, and we understand and are respectful of so much more that parts of this feel outdated, especially when they try to make it like, oh, this is happening in effectively 2018, right? Like, they're, they're moving the story forward, but the politics of it are still deeply rooted in the time that they came out. This makes me remember um, 91 Days, which was also a mafia story, but that was a well, one anime original, but that took place flat out in uh, in Prohibition era, I think Chicago. Yeah, and it, and it directly avoids a lot of the the more problematic things that like Banana Fish, you know, uh, uses in its narrative. Yeah, it it's so much more focused on the revenge aspect, where Banana Fish is sort of about like this incredible seedy underbelly of New York and like the way that like politicians get in with mafiosos and use you know are using this drug for war and stuff like it's it's bite it has a very big bite to take and we'll see if it can chew it right like yeah there's there's a lot going on with its story and i don't think that it's like it's wrong to try to do that like it's clearly built up sort of this this development to it uh it's just whether or not it ends up sticking the landing yeah all right then yeah on a lighter note, 
I don't even I don't even have the schedule up, but I know that no matter what we're talking about, it's lighter than this. It's significantly lighter. It's My Hero Academia third season, which just <laughs> recently finished. Yeah. And has already announced, oh, hey, get ready for the fourth season. I mean, considering how third season ended, that's not a surprise. It, yeah, at this point, it's not a surprise that they announced it, but they're like, oh, yeah, it seems like it's primed and ready for 2019. Yeah. So the second half of this series got decidedly lighter than the first half, whereas the first half was about sort of the um, Bakugo retrieval arc and sort of like, you know, building up the heroes and finally having our first taste of All for One as our primary villain, right? Our end game boss. Well, hmm. Definitely described that way. He is definitely described that way. Give me that much. I'm not, I don't read the manga, so I'm not farther in. I mean, it's more of how, uh, of his uh, his little speech towards the end of the season of how he he wanted to pass something on. Right. Which makes me feel like he's trying to pass on his role of final boss to uh, Shigaraki Tamora. Tamora. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it feels like he's he's trying to pass the mantle. Mm-hmm. So the second half of this is school stuff. It, it, it really feels like it's uh, set up for season four. Not a bad way. I think that plenty is accomplished throughout this, but it, that's what it feels like. And the first focus is on Deku's goal to differentiate himself from All Might. After a speech where he he kind of comes to terms with the fact that he's just trying to emulate his hero and not trying to be his own person. Also, how trying to emulate All Might has literally been self- incredibly self-destructive for him. Right, consistently people are like oh yeah if you keep like fucking up your arms you're just never going to be able to use them ever again so how about cut it out and uh Deku's solution is I'm going to become the kicking hero which is yeah. like it's <laughs> it's charming how how simplistic his like if I can't punch like all might I'm a kick <laughs> he gets his cool gauntlets and stuff it's great yeah he Deku is very smart but he is also very dumb yeah. So then the following uh, episodes are focused on the hero license exams, or like provisional hero license exams. Yes. Allowing these students to be able to, um, instead of being in like a more internish role as they were in season two, in the, in the next season, implying that they would be like more or less like backup heroes, right? They would be sidekicks. doing the job. Yeah, sidekicks. They'd be doing the job alongside the pros. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I really liked this, especially as a break from sort of like the heavier content coming out of the end of season two and now the beginning of season three. Like the fact that they just got to kind of have fun and still like have that sense of urgency and like importance to the story is like really good. Yeah, and we got to meet some uh, some interesting new characters and develop uh, some more characters that we know. Yeah, we met different hero schools too, which is something I didn't quite expect. Yeah. They're very cool in like interpersonal conflicts between schools with like Todoroki and like Todoroki got a lot of good characterization out of it, like recognizing where his faults are still from the way that he's trying to escape, you know, the shadow of his horrible, terrible father. Yeah, I appreciate that Todoroki realized that 
he was becoming sort of like his father on a on his path to escape his father's shadow. Yeah, and just the and the fact that it's basically just like, hey, stop being so self-centered and worried about, you know, taking care of this yourself. Recognize, you know, that you have to work with others. Yeah, which was the whole point of the second half of the exam to begin with. Yeah. And yeah, it's it was just a lot of fun, like meeting the new characters, seeing the old ones be able to interact. And even the the like the the fight between uh, Deku and Bakugo was like pretty good in setting up their rivalry in like a different with a different perspective. Yeah, I think this is where Bakugo's real turning point as a character has is has started. Right. House arrest will do that to you. <laughs> yeah, but I really liked that. For once, Bakugo is finally not being too consumed by rage to actually express himself. Mm-hmm. And Deku and Bakugo are actually able to reach an understanding of each other, and I think it's a strong point for both of them to go going forward. Yeah, totally. And, like, the, the new um, UA heroes that we meet at the very end of the season are very good. The big three, Naruto, Bleach, and One Piece. <laughs> Mirio's a good boy, even if he constantly shows his willy to the students. Mirio is extremely good. He is a good boy. And I'm interested in the, the villain that they've set up for the next arc, because it's not anyone we've seen before. Like, it feels in a lot of ways that, like, early on, it's like, oh, you know, there's this rogues gallery being built up around um, Hands Man. But now we're, like, getting new people that are, like, comparable to him and trying to do, like, their own thing, it feels like. Oh, yeah. What did you think of uh, the spotlight on Twice? Uh, Twice? I'm I'm not sure what to think of. I think that was a cool setup, like, to get to that. I just, I'm not sure what that means for Twice or the villains going forward, but it's, like, a very cool look into to who that character is, especially because, like, you didn't get a lot of that. He was, like, the the most underutilized during that, that whole sequence at the training uh, camp. Yeah. It's, like, a really good framing device to sort of, like, get you a little uneasy. Because you're like, oh, why are they focusing on this character? Are we, are we seeing into the mind of, you know, someone who's, like, looking on it from the outside and is jaded? But it's like, no, this is a villain, but, like, this villain has this, like, quirk to them that's affecting them in this very strange and tragic way. Yeah, it kind of gives you a set a sense of the League of Villains as a, a different sort of gang of misfits. Yeah, and definitely, like, with that scene, Jin has become the most, like, sympathetic of the villains. Yeah. It's the first time you see a villain and you're not just like, oh, they're just, like, a bad person. Like, this is the first time it's like, oh, this guy's, like, got, like, psychosis issues and his quirk or whatever is, like, affecting it, him in this way that causes him to have these issues. And he's just, like, and it's, like, just fucked him up so much that now he's going in and he's, like, he doesn't know what to do, so he goes in with this bad group. Yeah, I really like that, and I kind of hope we get that sort of development with the other villain, with the other main uh, League of Villains characters later on. Yeah, because, like, a lot of those villains just seem like, oh, they're crazy. <laughs> well, there is the lizard guy who's just a, a, an edgelord. Right, but you look like, 
Himiko, and it's like, oh, this is just the Yandere that they put in for all the Yandere fans out (laughs) there. Like, are they going to try to make her, like, more of a character? I don't know. Like, maybe. It probably is probably going to go more like the the route of, like, Dobby. Dabby? Yeah, Dobby's definitely due for some spotlight because of his shtick. Yeah. I, I expect to never see muscular or mustard again. Yeah, I think that. But I, like, you, I think you they know, got. Okay. I was just gonna say, I think they got arrested, so they're effectively out. Yeah. So you know, we'll see how they how they do with that as they go forward. We'll see what they do with some of these these villains. Yeah. Because like outside of the ones that we've now named, who's left? All the Nomus. They're not gonna do that with the Nomus. There's um, uh, Kurogiri. Oh right, uh, yeah the 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 teleportation man. Yeah, the bartender. Yeah, so yeah, maybe something with him. And finally, let's talk about. I think this was the best anime this season. Lupin the Third, Part Five. What a ride! Yeah, so Lupin the Third, Part Five, as we talked about previously, is sort of split up into like movie-sized stories that have. In the end, like a collection of characters that continue to show up and and affect the plot. And the second half of this gets way farther into that, including the final story, which is like, oh, I think it's fantastically done. Not only oh, tying yeah. in all of Lupin's previous adve- Lupin's previous adventures, like, you know, setting up as a character that all of these things are canon and have happened, but also like giving a good resolution like they did in part four with like Rebecca. They give a, a good resolution to Ami and, and, you know, some of the other, like, characters within the galley. Like, I, I feel, like, completed with the arc of Albert, you know? Yeah. I mean, I feel like Albert's going, like, if they do another Lupin thing, Albert would be the villain of said thing. Mm-hmm. Because he's trying, like, from the ending of that, it seems like he's trying to establish his own sort of rogues gallery collection of allies like Lupin has. Yeah. Um, before we get into the, the plot stuff, since I feel like the last two um, like story bits tie into each other really well, I want to talk about the um, individual stories. Oh yeah, those are really good. So, the first one that they did within this season was Lupin has to pretend to be a detective. <laughs> so, like, solving the mystery of someone who is is expecting to be, like, killed and have their, like, prized jewel taken away from them. Yeah, it was a charming little bit. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good one where, like, Lupin doesn't do anything really cool. He just, like, shows off how smart he is, and it's just, like, solving this, like, locked room mystery in front of a bunch of people and sort of, like, working out these ideas. Yeah, and the, the twist with the mystery at the end was pretty funny. Yeah, no, it's it's good. The whole thing's the whole thing's very cute. Then we have <laughs> the episode where everyone got a shit. <laughs> so the the idea behind this one is by the end we discover this, but like Fujiko came over and Lupin was just like blasted on alcohol. He was drunk off his mind and had forgotten that his anniversary with Fujiko, and so she had dumped this, uh, she had dumped, like, a bag, uh, like, some kind of gift for him in the toilet, and it clogged the toilet, and now everyone got a shit, and they're all having problems, because the toilet's clogged. The episode, the gang has to fix their toilet. (laughs) Yeah, and 
and also have to deal with Zenigata at the same time who's coming around. They have to, like, deal with the fact that they can't poop and also, like, have to put on this whole, like, oh, they're old people shtick and they, like, invite them in and, like, feed them noodles and stuff. God, Goemon got some really good, goofy characterization in that bit. I, I liked all the character bits in that one episode. Yeah, no, it, it it's also, like, just the most, like, down-to-earth sort of situation I feel like Lupin's been in since 2015, Lupin. Yeah. Like, no thievery or anything, man just gotta poop. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it also felt like this maybe served as a, like, a nice setup for some of the issues that they bring up in the final part. Right, with, like, Lupin and uh, Fujiko's relationship, and you see here where it's, like, it's already, like, a little rocky, and it's been rocky throughout the entire season, but, like, it builds to something here. Yeah. Uh, we get a good uh, Jigen episode. Like, everyone has sort of had these singular episodes throughout with these, like, one-offs, and Jigen gets his here where he's sort of, like, first of all, gets to prove how much of a good marksman he is, but also, like, it goes into his backstory in a way that, like, I feel has never been done. Like, he always gives off this very specific type of character now that he's, like, an old curmudgeon. But, like, this shows a much more sensitive side to him as he has to deal with, like, someone from his past who was also a marksman, like, in the same, um, like, soldier group that he was when he was younger. Yeah, an old comrade. Also, uh, does not explain how time works with the Lupin group where, like, someone that Jigen knew grew up had a child that is then the same age that the mother and Jigen were at the time, but Jigen is still, like, kicking it. I mean, I don't think- t I think we established time works weird when they established that Lupin looked exactly the same as back when he was working with Albert, and that was before he became known as Lupin the Third. Right, they're just eternal beings, I guess. We just have to accept that they've uh, had a drink from the Fountain of Youth. All of them. <laughs> I mean, that could be one thing Lupin stole. She, he stole immortality. I wouldn't put it past him at this point. <laughs> That's a good one where, like, Lupin gets to be in the sidelines and just, like, basically he just plays, like, chess with an eccentric billionaire while Jigen has this, like, character moment while he's sniping against someone. It's good. Yeah. And then finally, the, the last one is, at some point, Zenigata loses his memory, wakes up in, I think, Russia, and is taken in by, like, a couple of thieves, and find out that, like, because he's been tracking Lupin and knows so much about Lupin, he's also, like, really good at thievery, so he starts becoming <laughs> a thief to, like, try to steal back his identity as he, like, you know, kind of figures out what he's doing. <laughs> God, Zenny God is such a doof. He's so good. God, it's, it's such a good episode, too, right? Like, it, it really shows you how his character is, like, so tied to Lupin, like, this kind of red string of fate sort of thing. And is a better thief than Lupin, but because he's on this, you know, the side of the law, you know, he's constantly, like, kind of bungling his way through and not being able to catch Lupin when he could just steal things before Lupin did. <laughs> I do like that by the end of the episode, Lupin was extremely just trying his damnedest to pull one over on Zenigata. He's just so pissed that Zenigata is continually better than him at this whole deal. <laughs> and part of that's probably, like, his subconscious. He's like, oh, I know how the cops do this, so I can work around that, too. Very good. Yeah. 
But yeah, so the, the, the story that we get through the second half of Lupin the Third is primarily focused on Ami as a character. First of all, in like the way that she's learning to separate from Lupin and understand her relationship with Lupin and these other characters as she tries to live a normal life and how she gets ripped away from that. Yeah. Um, like the, fir- the first story we get is the story of this, this princess of a country that is divided literally and ideologically into sort of like, you know, super advanced technology and sort of like more traditional um, values. And, you know, there's this whole coup situation going on that involves like the FBI and the, the American government. And so it becomes sort of this like political intrigue story of how they can try to save this friend that Ami's made and be able to like restore peace to this country that's just about to go through a coup. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it, it, it explores Ami really well in her relationship with Lupin. And that's like the big thing that then sets up the final confrontation. Yeah, I was going to say this also like drops bits of the, the problems that have cropped up between Lupin and Fujiko and how Fujiko really wants to know where she stands with Lupin. It also introduces the Shake Hands Corporation, who plays a very large role in the last part of the show. Right. So um, then the final arc is where this Shake Hands organization has basically built an app that uses all of the data that, like, Facebook and other, like, social media groups steal from you to be able to, like, target things towards you, like ads and stuff. But what it's used instead is to sort of, like force everyone to be more honest with other people. Like, at the start, it's like, the big thing is like, oh, it's being used by people to find, you know, like, cheating husbands and stuff like that. And eventually it's like, oh, this is also being used to sort of like, capture all the data they have about Lupin and try to figure out how he's escaping and what he's using for disguises and be able to like, see through the things that he does to try to like, smokescreen people from recognizing him somewhat of a retread of the first arc. Yeah, but, like, on a much grander scale, right? Like, it's not it's not act- asking humans anymore to be able to, like, target him. It's like, oh, this app will just always tell you where Lupin is, and, like, if you say anything into this app, it will grade, based on all available knowledge in the universe, how accurate it is. Yeah. And this comes to a head because Lupin can't keep up with it, right? Like, he is outdone by this piece of technology to the point that it looks like he's going to, you know, he's going to get killed and like finally captured and like done away with. Right. I think it's also worth it to mention that during this, uh, Goemon has his own little arc of trying to figure out what he means to Lupin. Yeah, there's the, there's a whole story of like um, relationships and how this app generates them and like going on is suddenly thrown into is like thrown into a loop because the the leader of shake hands tells him like oh you know says into his app like oh lupon sees goemon basically as like a pet you know like as it's something to be protected like a prize a treasure yeah a treasure and so they they explore that as like goemon wants to understand what his relationship is with and i like how we have like Ami asking this, we have Goemon asking this, we have Fujiko asking this, 
Not at a single point does Jigen give any shits. He's like, yeah, Lupin pays me, whatever. The fuck, I don't care. I'm going to be here complaining about my toothache and being mad about ghosts. (laughs) I think I like for when Goemon has this whole crisis, an old-ass Goemon from one of the past Lupin shows shows up in, in his mind because of this. Yeah, and there's that whole bit where, like, the, the leader of Shake Hands is showing all of these clips from previous Lupin series where Lupin and uh, Goemon fought. Yeah. There's such a stark contrast to see what Lupin was and is now. Yeah, it's re- like, I think the series as a whole asks the quest, or at least wants you to consider the question of, can an IP like Lupin really be considered relevant in the year 2018 or going forward or whatnot? Yeah, and I mean, of course, the answer is yes. <laughs> but yeah, it really, it really wants to ask the question of like the relationships that those shows built on implicitly, and like really ask like what you're expected to think of these characters and their relationship because it's like everything's just taken for granted because it's just set up that way. Yeah, and yeah, it, it ends with a really good confrontation where Lupin is able to like evade security by using the uh destroyed remnants of the castle of Cagliostro. Right, that's his hideout from where he plans his counterattack and it's great. Yeah. And it ties in all these other characters from different movies and like the movie canons like at one point uh there's this movie um exclusive character. I don't remember the name of the movie, but um it's a character named Diane who like, oh, you know, she owes me a favor. So she gives me a new car, you know, that shoots out from this aircraft carrier. Like, it's so crazy. (laughs) It's really cool, though, because it, like, it acknowledges the greater canon of Lupin in a way that, like, even Part 4 didn't really do. Like, it it wants you to appreciate all of what Lupin has been. Yeah, it makes Lupin feel more like one big cohesive whole. The Lupin Cinematic Universe is real, people. <laughs> Extremely real. And yeah, so like, by the end of it, it, it deals with the, the idea of, you know, the relationship between Ami and Lupin by like, not denying that this is like, a crush that she has on Lupin, but like, also understanding like, the boundary that exists between these characters and her need to, to be her own person. Yeah. I think a nice thing that Ami acknowledges towards the end is that she and Lupin are very similar and that they both enjoy that thrill-seeking rush. Oh yeah, totally. And maybe the biggest reveal of all. Ah yeah, the big reveal that maybe that may or may not have broken uh, a certain character's brain. I uh, Who knows if it's even a reveal, right? Like, it's, it's framed in such a way that I'm pretty sure, like, anything is possible. And so the idea is that Fujiko is like, oh, you know, we've had this relationship for all this time and sort of like it ended on these terms in this situation. And I just want an answer of what I mean to you as, you know, as a person. And it's like uh, Lupin's like, I'm going to show you the real me. And Lupin takes off his face, which apparently is also its own mask and reveals his true face to everyone in that room. <laughs> and we don't get to see it. Yeah. And so, 
we're left wondering if this is a Kakashi situation where under his mask is another mask or like what's going on. But presumably this answers the question that has been brought up by Fujiko in a way that like kind of gets them both back together in the same sort of like weird way that uh, Fujiko has with Lupin. Yeah, it's a really nice, you know, show of trust, but also, you know, it's it shows that uh, that Lupin has a lot of tricks, that his whole performance as Lupin the Third is an act, and that maybe we've never really seen the true Lupin. Right, like, he does this because he enjoys it and he finds it fun, but, like, there's clearly more to the character. That even we, the viewer, having spent 50 years with him, don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's just... Everything about that season so well done. Just absolutely, like, fantastic, I feel. Like, just solid all the way through. Yeah, it's a really great ride from start to end, and it's just a fun, you know, bit of character exploration of uh, what Lupin's deal is. Yeah, totally. And, like, not often does it, like, make you rethink, you know, this this character basically within the classic canon, but, like, it does in such a way that, like, Gives you more information, but, like, also has you, like, yearning for more. Like, I really hope this becomes, like, not more frequent, but, like, they come back to Lupin more. Yeah, I wouldn't mind, like, a new Lupin movie every now and then. Yeah, and, like, you know, that crazy son of a bitch, Ichiro Okochi did it. He made a full series, there are no issues with the whole thing. God bless you, Mr. Code Geass. Oh my god, I forgot this was written by the Code Geass guy. Congrats on making something that wasn't a hot mess. Congrats on just, oh, just a good, consistent story. Fantastic. Oh, (laughs) beautiful. Yeah, what a ride. And maybe part of that has benefited from the fact that, like, every so often two or three episodes would be stolen away by, like, someone else writing in the style of old Lupin, but still. Yeah, the the four main... I guess OVAs were really good. And that's the season. Woo! Yeah, we got out of here pretty early, but I mean, like, we didn't watch as many shows, maybe, as last time, but, like, we watched a, we watched some good shows this season. Yeah, there was some real quality anime this summer. Yeah, let's say about them, just like a good, it's just a good spread of different types of shows, right? There, It does really feel like, you know, there's a good something for everyone in this season. Yeah. And I, I don't think currently Fall's looking any different. Like, I haven't had time to catch up with most of the shows as, they, as they've as they premiered. But, like, from what I've heard, it's it's got to get a pretty good spread. And, like, a lot of the stuff we expected to be good is good. And a lot of the stuff we expect to be bad is still bad. So, <laughs> so I mean, at least we're good on that front. Like, we're, we're able to guess pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm for... excited to see. Oh, God. I was going to say basically the same thing. I'm excited to see uh, Fall's anime delights going forward yeah totally um yeah it's just you know there's still plenty that hasn't aired yet we're sort of just getting the first wave of stuff and hopefully you know by the end of this we all just come out with some good shows yeah it seems like it seems like we weren't entirely correct with some of our guesses but that doesn't mean that the shows that we're not interested in still don't interest us specifically i'm thinking of zombie land saga which it's like, oh, this looks like uh, kind of your exploitative sort of horror thing. Apparently it's not. Did you hear about this? Yeah, I did. I heard, oh, you thought this was a zombie thing? Well, guess what? It's zombie idols, baby! Right, which is just like, it's its its own different sort of like, wow, I can't believe they made a twist 
that makes me like less interested in watching it. They really done did it. <laughs> but hey, you know, there, there's an audience out there for that sort of twist and sort of that that irreverent sort of humor. So you know, God bless them. But yeah, so like between that and for like everything else, it's like oh, you know. Ace Attorney 2 looking a lot better than the first season, just, like, production-wise, and, like, it feels just as snappy and good and, like, you know, keeping the pace that the first season did. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that adaptation turning out well. Yeah, JoJo's Part 5 had a strong start. Yes, they put in one of the most iconic scenes in Episode 1. That's right, I forgot, like, some of the framing behind it, because, like, everyone only takes that one clip from it, but it's, uh... There's something so great about, like, trying to, to, like, pretending to leave the train, and then as he, like, turns the thing into an eyeball, he just, like, comes in through the window and, like, I'm gonna eat your sweat now. (laughs) Like, (laughs) this is the taste of a liar, Giono Giovanna! Oh, it's so good. Ugh. But yeah, so, I'm sure we'll have more to say once once we're able to watch through everything. But yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to next season, and I'm, I'm glad summer was so good as well. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm real looking forward to fall, and I'm real happy to talk good stuff up about summer. Yeah. And, speaking of talking about summer, we have a little bit more to say, because we've got some fan mail. The first one comes from friend of the show, Cubie. And this is more of like a, a PSA for all you out there. It's hard for me to remember anything that happened this season that wasn't Review Starlight, but remind your listeners to not forget about High Score Girl, which got licensed by Netflix and will likely be on that platform in a few months. It's a truly unique adaptation that should be experienced. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's always kind of a hard thing about the Netflix things, is we don't get a chance to talk about them in their released form, and even if we, like, you know, download the subs for it, like, people aren't going to see that sometimes for months. That reminds me, I didn't watch Tenro Sirius the Jaeger because it was picked up by Netflix. So if that ever, so whenever that gets picked up by Netflix, I guess I'm going to be watching that. Yeah, and so, and I think it's, a, I think it's 24 episodes, so we might see the first core soon and then the second core later. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully we see that soon because, yeah, the more I see from that, like just the designs and like shots and everything, especially from uh, the concept artist, it like looks really cool. Like I... I'm getting more and more into, like, the look of it as things move forward, so I would hope to see it sometime soon. Yeah, me too. Oh, and then, uh, also follows it up with, if you want a question, all I got is hashtag dabwatch2018, who would dab from Summer's anime? I say the two leads of Banana Fish. (laughs) And I think, you know, putting them in 2018, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, they're a little more hip. I think if anyone from Banana Fish is going to do it, it's Shorter Wong, though. Uh, Shorter is, like, sort of this, he's, he definitely feels like he's kind of the, the hipper, cooler sort of person. He's, like, the boss of Chinatown. He's got, like, a purple mohawk. He seems like he'd be way more into Fortnite than any of the other characters, you know? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, uh, one of the characters from, um, Planet with Nizuya? Oh, the, the, the Chunibyu. Yes, he would definitely dab. Oh, yeah, he he would dab, but he would, like, try to make it seem like it's way cooler. Like, he's not just dabbing, right? Like, yeah, you know, he's calling forth spirits or something. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's there's definitely, like, a lost episode where uh, Lupin tries... Either Lupin or uh, Princess Dolma would absolutely teach Ami how to dab. (laughs) (laughs) That episode exists somewhere. 
even if it's in it's only in my mind and it's good i think that's i think that's the dab watch right the, those those are the main focus ones yeah does anyone also be asabase dab i know they get into like the whole like pyramid occult thing right they do that they, they they hip enough to dab. I think Hanukkah would dab because she is so desperate to be popular. And dabbing is popular, <laughs> right? So she'll right. dab as hard as you can. <laughs> I've been, so I learned this the other day because my, my brother is like 13. So he, he keeps me up to date with like the new fresh memes. And apparently kids these days are using default as an insult for someone that like that they look basic. In, in reference to the Fortnite default, like, avatar that is given to all the characters when they start. Oh my god. I think that's, like, first of all, the most savage thing that a child could say at this point. But it's like, that seems like the sort of thing, if this character is supposed to be, like, desperately trying to be cool, the kind of, like, language that they pick up on. That extremely seems like something that should have caught on already by now, saying that someone looks like a default avatar. Right. But I guess, like, just Fortnite is the thing big enough to, to finally get that into, into canon, basically. Jeez. Anyways, that's it for this episode. Zane, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at at ZaneZero, X-A-I-N-Z-E-R-O, where I usually tweet about whatever is currently interested me at the time, which currently is nothing. Or it's just whatever anime I'm watching. Hey, hey, video games are coming out soon. Yes. Yes, they are. There's, uh, there's Fist of the North Star. That just came out, actually. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to, uh, the World Ends With You Switch version. Now with all the music, forever. Right, and that- and basically, like, an extra mode that's like, Hey, sorry we never made a sequel for this! Here's an after-story with the character that we teased! I mean- the other thing is, uh, Tetsuya Mora apparently has claimed that, Oh, if you want Tui 2, please buy Tui Switch! Please. <laughs> it does feel like the the extra mode is like an apology for the fact that 1282 didn't happen yet. Please appease our co- corporate overlords. I really want to make this game. <laughs> that could be his next big project after Kingdom Hearts 3 is finally out. It's coming out. It's real. Swear to God, it's real. They keep showing footage of it, so it has to be. <laughs> And as always, you can find me at Chorpsaway, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y on Twitter. You can find uh, the YouTube channel where I post video versions of this podcast and other uh, great video game content uh, by going to youtube.com slash C slash Chorpsaway S-A. And you can find the podcast by going to uh, Twitter and we are Coco underscore Disaster there. You can find us at CocoDisaster.com where you'll find our latest episodes, you'll find links to our RSS feed and our backlog, and also a link to the text-only and only anime blog on the internet run by uh, me and friend of the show, QB, uh, where we talk about stuff that just uh, maybe doesn't fit into the uh, podcast format, or we don't want to pull out our microphones to talk about. And uh, you can also find us on all of your favorite uh, podcast-catching services, things like iTunes, uh, Stitcher, and Google Play. And you can leave reviews there if you want to and tell us about how uh, gosh dang charming we all are. Anyways, it's time to talk about the single servings. And boy howdy, do we have a... Did I remember to time the release of this first one correctly so that it would be the Spooktober episode? Join us soon for the release of an episode on Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. 
a gothic horror series, uh, probably most known in the West for uh, being illustrated by the man behind the main illustrations for Final Fantasy. Amano? Yeah, Amano is the is the original character designer for Vampire Hunter D, the the novel series. Ah. Yeah, so uh, keep a lookout for that. I'll be doing that episode with uh, returning guest Hobotron, and then later uh, I will be doing an episode with a newcomer and a friend of the show, Heptomy Ride, who will be doing an episode with me on uh, Ping Pong the Animation. I feel like one of the first big sort of science Saru animations to come out that really that really let Masaki Yuasa sort of like, you know, stretch his limits and show what he can do. So, look out for that. And make sure to send in fan mail for that, either by uh, sending it to uh, chirpsawaysa at gmail.com or by uh, leaving it as a reply to any of the tweets we make about it on the Twitter. And we'll see you next time. But until then, I've been Chorpsaway. And I've been Zane Zero. And this has been Coco Disaster. Sweet dreams.